when I come into the hall in the evening and uh, have the uh, really the privilege of uh, offering the evening talk and reflections, I like to begin by taking a few moments to just pause and remember and pay my respects to the Buddha and to just connect with my sense of appreciation for his teaching, his life and uh, the way in which his dedication and commitment to to spiritual exploration and discovery has profoundly touched my life and the life of so many people throughout the ages. And that quality of just remembering, acknowledging what the Buddha as a human being like ourselves represents, that sense of just allowing oneself to be reminded of what is possible for us. And really what the Buddha represents and what his awakening represents for all of us is the possibility of our own awakening. The possibility that we all and the potential that we all have for profound and deep transformative understanding to touch our hearts, our minds, our bodies, and our lives. And it's, I think, important for us to consider, to question, and to reflect on also the degree to which we really trust this possibility, to which we allow ourselves to include this possibility. To realize, to know for ourselves what it is that the Buddha knew and that the awakened beings of all ages, of all genders, of all heritages and communities, the awakened beings of our human culture, what they have realized. Do we trust that this is something that we too can realize? Or do we sometimes feel like, actually that sounds interesting, but I'd be okay to be a little bit more comfortable, thank you. (laughs) And sometimes, of course, we come on a retreat with a a great aspiration and sense of urgency, or we discover one in the journey of our practice. And then at times, when things are challenging, we, we find that urge for just, please, could at least just a little bit less difficult would be fine by me. You know, I'll be happy. And so, for me, I, I like to remember and to reflect on and to, to share the story and the, that, that, that process of the Buddha and his journey. How he is, a, at that point, just spiritual explorer, person engaged in practice, interested, curious, caring, and concerned about life and his life. He sat down under the Bodhi tree in what is now northern India two and a half thousand years ago and he said and he recounted later what he said to himself he said I will not move from this spot until I have realized what can be realized by human endeavor 
Though my blood runs dry, though my bones turn to dust, I will not move from the spot until I have realized what can be realized by human endeavor. And I find it still, when I repeat the words or reflect one, it brings a little shiver down my spine sometimes. It's the sense of the, the commitment, the dedication to something which at that point he did not know what it was that he might discover because he had not yet discovered it. But something in him knew and trusted that possibility. And there is something in us too, I believe, which knows, which senses, which may not yet fully trust but can come to a deep faith in that potential. To know, to realise our deepest truth, our most authentic nature. And what it is that may be realised by human endeavour. And I think it is important that we do trust this. That we have some sense of this possibility. And this is one of the reasons why it's important and of value to have images and symbols that reflect and remind us of this. Not because there's some kind of religious importance to having a particular sort of image, but because it speaks to us of something that is possible for us. And the story is told that when the Buddha sat down, well, actually he wasn't the Buddha. It's interesting that I, me too, the story is often told as if the Buddha, it wasn't the Buddha. This was a human being who had not yet awoken. But when he sat down under the tree that night, all those years ago, it's said that he encountered many challenges, many difficulties, and he related them in terms of forms and expressions of what we could understand as greed, of hatred, of confusion, the forces that we encounter in our mind. And in the storing, in the kind of poetic, mythical story that he tells, embodied in the form of a character known as Mara, who is trying to scare him or entice him or confuse him in such a way as he would give up in this endeavour in this commitment to wake up. And the story recounts that over the time as he in, in this encounter where having made that commitment and encountering all these forces that challenged and threatened him in staying seated. The Buddha reached out and put his hand on the earth and touched the earth and called on the earth to witness his right to be there and the potential of what could flower in his awakening. And so the image that we have here in the hall the, uh, the rear of the two images, the Buddha image sitting, hand touching the earth, represents this connecting with the vastness of the earth and the, the vastness of his journey, and the human journey, I would say, 
that brings this possibility of awakening. And I wonder what it's like for you to just contemplate this. In a way, this, not just symbol, but this message of human potential. That can become real for us. That can be realized, realized, actualized, embodied, known directly. What it is for the heart to know release. The heart-mind. To know release. And so we might ask, and I think importantly, wisely, appropriately, we might ask, what are we here for? What are we here for on this retreat? Sure, yeah, what are we here for? But also, what are we here for in this life? And there are, of course, many valid and authentic ways we could respond to that. And one of them is in terms of this potential, this possibility, this sense that we perhaps feel or hear the whispers of, or see the glimmer of possibility somehow vibrating or shining in and through the entanglements and the challenges of our journey. The Buddha himself said in this context, he said, the reason for my teaching, this holy life, as he called it, the reason for my teaching, this holy life, does not have gain or honor or renown for its benefit or the attainment of virtue or concentration for its benefit, or even knowledge and wisdom as its goal. But this unshakable deliverance of mind, this sure heart's release, this is the fulfillment of the holy life, its heartward and its completion. And when we hear something like this, we might, again, just kind of just allow that possibility in. What would it be for us to meet this moment and each moment with a sense of possibility? Of discovery. It's something that can touch to the very core of our human existence, our being. And do we believe this is possible for us? In the teachings, in the uh, uh, sort of one of the foundational teachings and texts on meditation, uh, from which a lot of the practices we've been engaged in, in terms of mindfulness and wakefulness and presence, are drawn the Satipatthana Sutta, which um, is about establishing the frameworks for being mindful and present. The Buddha talks about what will happen if one should practice in this way. And he says that if one should practice for seven years, then for sure, dedicated to practicing 
being mindful and present, for sure there will be transformative understanding. He said, not just seven years, for seven months, for sure there will be transformative understanding. And not just seven months, but seven weeks. And not just in seven weeks, but for seven days, if one should practice. I haven't quite counted up how many days we've been here. (laughs) But it's heading in that direction. So one of the things that it's important for us to do, I think, is to consider whether we have views about ourselves that somehow place us outside of that possibility. Outside of the, the potential that the Buddha's teachings point to. Some idea that we have that, yeah, that sounds all very well, but it's probably not for me. It's probably going to be some other kind of spiritual people that happens for. Maybe, you know, maybe it's possible. I kind of need to sort all my stuff out first. I've noticed there's quite a bit of it hanging around. And we can see this sort of sense. And there's, of course, there's a real importance and a validity in, in looking at our patterns and our processes and our kind of structures, the way we've been shaped and formed by the journey of our life and our history. And seeing where, as we come to understand them, begin to digest them, there's an opening and there's a, a freeing and a loosening. And that, that's an essential component of spiritual practice. Absolutely. And yet, because there is rather a lot of that to be done, it seems. In fact, most of us who've been doing it for decades seem to have not come to the end of their own particular work in that regard. Certainly, I would say that of myself. Um, And if we have the idea that somehow I have to do all of that first, then we misunderstand something here. From one perspective, we can understand that if we're just trying to become a better version of me, an improved, a resolved or a sorted out version of me, a kind of better or perfect self, in a certain way we're simply rearranging the furniture in the prison cell. We're simply moving things around and maybe it's more comfortable. Perhaps there's a bit more room. Possibly we've even renovated it, knocked a few walls out. (laughs) And great. Again, nothing to be taken away from that. But not to imagine that that somehow stands as a process that must be completed or finished before we can also come to understand in the very midst of our life and our practice and right here, what it is that the Buddha understood under the tree all those years ago. Interestingly, the image of the Buddha is often shown, and uh, likewise, Kuan Yin, the, uh, the image at the front here, a, uh, an embodiment of awakening and compassion in a feminine form. And both Kuan Yin and the Buddha are shown sitting on lotuses, lotus flowers, It's the classic image for any awakened being sitting on a lotus flower. And the significance of... It doesn't really look like a lotus flower, I guess, but 
If you look up close, you can see it does have petals. And that the significance of the lotus flower is that the lotus flower doesn't grow in clean running streams or sort of well-tended um, bodies of water. It grows in muddy ponds. And of course it emerges from the mud. It's not that the, the lotus requires that the mud somehow disappear before it emerges. And yet when it does, and remarkably if you've ever watched and seen, somehow all the water just runs off as the flower unfolds. So we can also have the idea that, you know, I've got a, and kind of maybe older sort of language from the sort of the Asian cultural tradition, we might say, I've got to work out all my karma. All the things I've done in my life that I don't feel so good about, I've got to kind of, kind of go back and sort all that out. And the interesting thing, of course, that the Buddha himself and the stories are told, and I mean, some of this is in a way perhaps metaphorical, but it may also be literal. There are stories where the Buddha talked about how he experienced his karma, how he still was affected by the ripples that flowed out from what he'd done in his past, in his previous life and lives, according to how he understood it. That, that continued to impact him and affect him in his life, even after his awakening. Very clear in specific ways. And so it's very clear that oh, that process of, in a way, digesting, we could say, the impact and the ripples of our previous experience and our, our action, again, that's not something that has to happen. That is not a bar or a precursor condition to the possibility of awakening. There's a story he talks about when he... And we, we don't have to take these literally, but he, he, he says one time, you know, he was walking and he... Walking bare feet in rural India, and he got a stone in his foot and it hurt. And he, he said, yeah, this, this is due to something that I did in the past where I, 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 I caused my mother to hurt herself. And... I don't know if I have quite such a literal view of how that might work. But what I think, again, it, the important thing is seeing it's the, the Buddha is still in the process of being subject to the laws of how things work for human beings. And therefore, we don't somehow need to get beyond that as a precondition for our spiritual maturing and deepening. And sometimes you know, we'll say, I've, I've just done too many bad things. Wow, there's no way I'm going to be, you know, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wake up. I've just done too many bad things. Sometimes people tell me about the bad things they've done. You know. I try and tell them about bad things I've done as well because it kind of, I think it's a healthy thing to do. We've all probably done things we look back and go, oh gosh. Yeah, I wish I hadn't done that. And yet, interestingly, in the, you know, in the story of the Buddha, one of the, uh, the characters he encountered was a, a, a robber or murderer who uh, 
killed hundreds of people, but who in this encounter with the Buddha somehow understood something and woke up. And again, very interesting image that someone who had been quite a, a dubious character, we have to say, um, having killed a lot of people, used to, you know, the images are quite unpleasant sometimes in these stories, you know, used to cut their fingers off so, and wore them in a necklace around his neck. You know, and you kind of think, you think people are, you know, sometimes a bit dodgy these days. Well, it's been going on for a while. But what's interesting is, even with that history, somehow, that which was within that individual, and his name, Angulimala, meant finger necklace, that capacity, that capacity for being touched and for awakening was not removed, or even, in fact, that far away, it seems. And so whatever we might have done, that we feel, oh, gosh, I really wish I hadn't done that, that in itself is not on the way here. Of course, the story is that Angulimala, when walking through the villages, the locals would recognise him, even though he was now a, um, a, a monk and, and an, you know, an awakened human being, and they would throw rotten vegetables at him. <laughs> but he just kind of had to put up with it, because that's what you have to do sometimes, it seems. And it, 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 I mean, in a sense, it's an amusing story, but in another way, I think it's pointing to something really important. Yeah. Or we might say, I have you know, too much stuff to work out. You know, Oh gosh, my parents, well, they you know, put a pretty heavy trip onto my life. And it's... Actually, the Buddha had parents too, it turns out. Actually, everybody I know had parents. It's funny. <laughs> Nobody had my parents except me and my brother and sister, but everybody else had their parents. And something in that tends to work out in quite a difficult way. And sometimes in an extremely difficult way. It can be incredibly hard what that involves for us. And yet that too is not ultimately something that stops what is possible for the human heart to know, to realise and to wake up. And again, in saying that, I'm not warning in any way to take away from the very real challenge that we might encounter from our journey, from our relationship to our family, our parents, our life. Not at all. But to understand that that in itself is not something that takes away from us what is possible for us. We sometimes think, I have to be really tough on myself if I'm going to get anywhere here. I'm going to really have to push. I'm going to pour, you know. The Buddha said he wouldn't move. Okay, so I'm not going to move, you know. And... Uh, Apparently the Buddha sat there for quite a while. Um, I wouldn't try and compete with him if, it was, if I was you in that regard. But that kind of commitment isn't about sitting in one place as such as I hear it, although maybe literally in that moment it was. It's about the dedication and commitment and alignment to our intention, saying, I will not move from this, this interest, this commitment, this willingness to look and to see and to meet and to open and to trust 
in the possibility of what I don't yet know, but which nonetheless may just be whispering quietly. And interestingly, you know, again, in the story of the Buddha, he was pushing himself and really trying hard for, for many years. He, he, he did all these extreme practices where he, he virtually starved and he did all these incredibly hard things. And in the end he realized, that doesn't work. And it's really great because that means we don't have to do the same thing <laughs> to figure it out. We can trust him on that, I would say. And it was actually when I a young woman came to him and offered him some food, some sweet milk rice, that he suddenly took this nourishment and sat and remembered the possibility from when he was young of just being present in a very simple, direct way and thought, oh, maybe this is what's needed. This quality of presence, of simplicity, of mindfulness, of being awake and interested, which we're cultivating and practicing here together. And he went to sit under the tree. And the whole unstoppable process of his awakening emerged. And it came from this offering of kindness, of nourishment, of, of, of care. Not from forcing or pushing or self-denial. So this speaks to our, perhaps some of the ways we imagine, without quite having let ourselves notice it, that we might be not quite the audience that the Buddha was speaking to, not quite of the community for whom these teachings were specifically designed, and yet, in fact, the truth is that we are, each of us. Exactly the people to whom these teachings were offered and to whom they speak and the potential that these teachings point to is something of our human birthright for each of us, for all of us. Even if we don't look like the person for whom that's going to be the case. One of my favourite stories from the sort of the many stories of the communities and traditions and teachers of this practice over the hundreds and thousands of years is the story of Hui Ning. And Hui Ning was a simple, simple person living in, in China. And I think in the 5th or 6th century, but actually my memory seems to have just deserted me on that one, so it could be something quite different. Maybe it's a little later. Anyway, he, he heard a few lines from a teaching and was inspired by it and thought, I, I want to know, I want to understand what's all this about. So he went to the monastery, which it turned out was a, um, a very important monastery with a very wise teacher, and he, he, he went and he asked to join and become a monk and they said, oh no, peasant boy, no, you go work in the kitchen. Sent him, sent him to the kitchen to work. And 
they, the very wise um, abbot of the monastery was elderly and realised it was time for him to, to pass on his authority and the, the role that he had. And so he said, I'll, I'll, I'll transfer this, this authority of, of, as the abbot to the wisest of my followers here. And the way I'll determine who that is is I'd like you to write a poem to express your understanding, your wisdom. And all the, all the, all the people who lived in the monastery were talking, oh, oh my gosh, I wonder who's going to win it. It's, it's, and everyone was pretty sure it would be the, the next most senior monk who was known to be really wise and had been practicing for many, many years. And so no one wrote a poem on the wall except this monk who, who wrote his poem. He said, The body is a Bodhi tree, the mind a mirror bright. Hour by hour we polish them and let no dust alight. And so this this beautiful image of the sense of something holy. The body is a Bodhi tree, the mind a mirror bright. And the sense of just kind of polishing, kind of the, the dust, what lands, what we see is we could perhaps understand as the, the patterns of reactivity that we encounter, that we work with. And Huening, working in the kitchen, heard about this and heard about what was happening and he, he asked someone to take him along and he couldn't actually read or write. But he asked someone to take him and show him and he read the poem and he thought, huh. And he had something else to say, he realised. And he asked this person who... I think maybe also worked in the kitchen. He said, can you write this down for me? And uh, his poem went like this. There is no Bodhi tree, nor stand of mirror bright, since all is void and empty. Where could the dust alight? And, uh, of course, you've probably guessed where the story's going. <laughs> Since we happen to know this kitchen hand's name, he, uh, yes, the abbot actually, uh, seeing the two poems on the wall very quickly, and said, who wrote this poem? The second poem, and Huayn was brought to him, and uh, elevated to the, the role and the rank of abbot, given the ceremonial bowl and the robe. And he was a kitchen hand the day before. Um, and... When the um, and the the abbot retired at that point, and uh, it turned out that Huening actually had to run away from the monastery. All the other monks were really angry that this kid from the, <laughs> that this kid from the kitchen had been given the job and, and the status in a way. But if we if we just take a moment to reflect on that, it's I think it's really interesting that sense that we often can have that somehow there's something about me that's not quite okay. And we've touched on this and talked about it in different ways. Because of what we see, the patterns of reactivity, contraction and structuring and limitation that emerge in us, that we see, that we somehow feel like my job and my practice and spiritual work is all about somehow working on that. And of course it does work, involve working with that, absolutely. But understanding that there's nowhere that it lands. And again, this is part of what we've spoken to and pointed to in different ways. 
There isn't somewhere where this lands. It's like rather than our practice being to take these, we could say, impurities out of what we call me or myself, we're actually being invited to take the self out of the impurities, out of the patternings, out of the reactivities. To see, yes, they're here. Whitening, it doesn't say there's no dust. Someone just invented that idea. No, no, the dust is acknowledged, but it's the sense of relationship to it that is profoundly reconfigured in the expression of his poem. Since all is void and empty, it doesn't say there's nothing there, but that the ownership of what's here cannot be taken by what we call ourselves as me, not to be taken as mine. And this is fundamental teaching of the Buddha. To not take as self these things that appear. To not define ourselves by them. That doesn't mean we don't take responsibility for them. We absolutely need to take responsibility for them. It's not like they're somebody else's. Although we might see that quite a few of them had their origin with somebody else. (laughs) Think about how many thoughts you've had today. How many of them were original? (laughs) How many thoughts did you have that no one's ever had before? There's not that many of them. And when they come, they're pretty exciting. And you know, not only that, but lots of them are thoughts that we got from other people who had them before us, aren't they? And they actually got them from someone else too, interestingly. They didn't think them up. And if we actually go back in time, we see these thoughts and views and beliefs, particularly about ourselves. We can't find where they began, but they began a long time before we were here. And they're not actually saying that much about who and what we truly are. And yet they're telling us about certain tendencies and patterns which need to be understood. There's a different kind of purity that we can understand. That's the the purity that arises in in the context of what we could talk about in chemistry as a as a, as a pure substance, which is it's all just the same at an elemental level. Like so, if we have pure water, there's nothing in there except water. Or you know, pure tomato concentrate. I think I used tomato concentrate for something else earlier. I think in a previous talk maybe, but it's, it's a useful thing, it seems, tomato concentrate. Pure tomato concentrate means there's nothing else in there except tomatoes. It doesn't mean somehow that it's sort of holy. But that sense of, of purity that we, we kind of recognise, it's about understanding what is unifying. What is always here. What isn't separated out into this and that, into self and other, into here and there. And so part of what happens in our practice is we are invited to start to notice not just the particularities, 
because it's essential to notice particularities. But actually, as we start to notice particularities, they start to reveal also what is common, the commonality. When we don't focus on the particular, but we nonetheless recognize it, we can start to sense something that we could perhaps more speak of in terms of totality, or the wholeness, that's made up of all the pieces. And so when we talk about purifying, and this is a language we'll often encounter in spiritual teaching and practice, I think we're more usefully purifying, or could understand it as more usefully purifying our willingness to open to and to include this, whatever that might be, whatever is here, to hold nothing back and to leave nothing out. And this invites a purification that isn't about the extraction of all the things that are irritating, difficult, unpleasant, or as yet not yet developed or matured in us. But it's, it's much more when we don't focus upon them something else perhaps begins to show. You know, the, the kind of things we might say again of, gosh, you know, this is supposed to be a long thing, isn't it? Doesn't it take lifetimes and lifetimes? You know, we might feel like we're just beginning, but of course we don't know if we should think about lifetimes, how many we've already had. We don't know what's gone before. You know, maybe this is, you know, we think it's, well, I've heard, I've read in the books, it says 100,000 lifetimes at least, but maybe this is that one, number 100,000. Maybe that's why you came to Guy House this week. <laughs> Everything else was leading up to this. It could be so. You know, the Buddha said we've cried enough tears to fill the four great oceans. We've lived so many lifetimes, our bones have piled high, would be as high as the high mountains. And again, literally, we may or may not resonate with what that suggests. But in another way, if we look at our lives, haven't we lived enough already? Hasn't there been enough experience already for us to see and to sense and to know that actually we can't hold on to this in the way we try so hard and that perhaps we could begin to really fully, deeply, profoundly and unconditionally let go. Not abandoning, not rejecting, not stepping away from, but just letting go of the pressure we place upon it. Letting go of the demand that it give us a reflection that feels particular or comfortable. 
and actually just looking directly, wholeheartedly into what's here. Being open to this. It's not about getting somewhere else, becoming someone else. It's so not about that. Anything, anywhere we can get to, by virtue of the fact we arrive there, we can also leave from there, leave that place. Anything we become, by virtue of the fact that we've become it, we can unbecome it. Anything that is part of a process of creating, of what is created, will at some point come apart. So what might it be to be open to the possibility of discovering what it is that is true and has always been true? For it is this that liberates the heart. And the Buddha, again speaking to this, he said, There is, friends, that base where there is no earth, no water, no fire, no air. No space, no consciousness, no nothingness, no perception. Neither this world nor another world, nor both. Here I say, friends, there is no coming, no going, no staying, no fading away, no arising, not fixed, not moving. And just this is the end of suffering, is the heart's release. Do we ever wonder what it is that's looking? We're so interested in what we're looking for. We're always fascinated by what we're looking at. And I don't just mean visually, but in terms of our contact with experience. But do we wonder what it is that's looking? Just have a sense of what it is that something's looking here. Looking, we could say, with us, in us, through us. Because that which we are looking for is what is looking. And all the movement of seeking and all the longing for that takes its expression in so many different ways in the world and our lives in some ways is a is an outflow and an expression and a a movement of the deepest movement of our longing and our looking, which is to know our truth. And it's right here. 
that which we are looking for is that which is looking. That which seeks is that which is sought. And in the seeing of this, of course, the movement of one towards the other dissolves. Because in fact they are not separate or apart. And there's a profound coming to rest. A dissolving of a momentum that we've been so familiar with we didn't know it was there. But we recognize it only in its stopping, in its ceasing, in its dropping away. And we find ourselves exactly where we are, where we always were. Rumi puts it like this, he says... I have lived on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons, knocking on a door. It opens. I've been knocking from the inside. Here we are, inside. So let's sit right here for a few moments together.
So may we all, in our practice here together, and in our lives, may we come to deeply trust in our own potential for awakening. to know our human birthright, the possibility of freedom. May we touch the earth and feel her support in this journey of awakening for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings the well-being of all that is Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.